Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Routine Jumper Podcast. I'm your host, Jalen Dixon, and I am just a guy with a mic that loves talking about NBA basketball. And today we are talking about three different teams in three different spaces in the NBA. We're going to talk about a team on the rise, a team I'm a little concerned about, and a team that everybody in the Eastern Conference might want to start putting some respect on. Yes, sir. So with that being the case, we got a lot to talk about today. Let's get straight into it. And I'm actually going to talk about the team that I'm a little bit concerned about first. And believe it or not, it is the Boston Celtics. Now, let me just start off by reading some of the statistics related to the Boston Celtics so far through this season. Through 66 games in the NBA, they are second in the Eastern Conference right now behind only the Milwaukee Bucks. They are fourth in points per game, ninth in opponents points per game, third in offensive rating, and fourth in offensive rating as one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league. If you need the specifics, they are second in attempts with 42 a game and seventh in percentage at 37.7% as a team. Now, I know what you're thinking. You read all those stats and you're saying, dang, the Boston Celtics are one of the only teams in the entire NBA. I think they're only one of four teams, four to five teams in the entire NBA that are ranked in the top five in both offense and defensive rating. So why would you be concerned about them? This is why. Recently, I came upon a graphic that really stood out to me and explained something in relation to the recent stretch for the Boston Celtics that really stood out. The graphic shows all three of their most recent losses to the Brooklyn Nets, the New York Knicks, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. One thing that should be noted about all three of those teams, they are all three teams that are going to probably end up making the postseason in the Eastern Conference. Let's look at what's notable about all three of those losses. In the loss to the Brooklyn Nets, they gave up the largest comeback in the NBA season so far this year at 28 points. In the game against the New York Knicks, they blew a 14-point lead and lost in double overtime while allowing Emmanuel Quickly, who deserves significant praise as the real six-man-of-the-year leading candidate in my belief, they lost in double overtime to that team while Emmanuel quickly dropped third, a career-high 38 points. And then Donovan Mitchell dropped 40 points on Monday to take down the Boston Celtics in overtime after the Celtics had a 15-point lead. What is the commonality between all three of those losses besides the fact that they are all Eastern Conference playoff teams? The, common, the, the commonality between those three losses for the Boston Celtics is that they are struggling to hold on to leads. This is a team that I think has become very comfortable front running throughout this season as the team that has flown a bit under the radar while still sitting atop the Eastern Conference. They're the team that outside of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown in spurts, the pe people do not talk about the Boston Celtics that much because throughout the season, they have quietly just been that dominant sitting atop of Eastern Conference that outside of the Milwaukee Bucks and the Philadelphia 76ers, most don't view the rest of the Eastern Conference as conjoined and congested as the West in terms of the potential 
not on just playoff contenders, but championship contenders coming out of the East. Yet, they have become so lackadaisical that they have now dropped to second in the Eastern Conference, despite easily being the best team in the league for majority of the season up until this point. Now, the other thing that I think is very important when you look at what's going on with the Boston Celtics is specifically the way they are generating offense. One of the most important things that I noted from those three losses is that they are getting up a ton of threes. And this is what happens in the live by the three, die by the three version of playing basketball. In none of those matchups did either team shoot better than 35, 36% from three. So in those matchups, despite losing significant leads, it wasn't like the, the Celtics were allowing a ton of three balls to come off. They also were shooting upwards of 53-point attempts between these three games, 53-point attempts per game across the board. They get these jokers up. They get these jokers up. I mentioned earlier on that in terms of attempts, they're literally second in the NBA right now at um 42 attempts per game. The most important thing about that is that when you get into this certain kind of rhythm of being able to knock down threes, there's a handful of guys that tend to come back down to earth because there's not going to be a lot of times where you have dudes shooting upward of 37 and 40 and 40 plus three point percentage for an entire year. And if we look at the circumstances of the NBA right now, there's not a handful of guys that are doing that across the league. And if we look at this team in particular, Al Horford, 45% on five attempts per game. Derek White, 37.5% on almost five attempts per game. Grant Williams, just over 40% on around four attempts per game. Malcolm Brogdon, just over four attempts per game, shooting 46%. You've got four guys right there that are taking at least four threes a game and hitting almost, if not over 40% from beyond the arc. I'm not saying it's not real, but I'm not, but I'm also going to make make it clear that I believe that it's obviously not sustainable. With that being the case, the Boston Celtics are in a pretty interesting situation here. Because I think at the end of the day, they're still the team that nobody necessarily wants to see in the postseason at all. I think they're in a very solid position to secure a top two seed in the Eastern Conference, which means until they face Milwaukee, if that were to happen, they would have home court advantage throughout the entirety of the Eastern Conference bracket. So the Boston Celtics, to me, are in a position where now I think they need to take the back portion of this season, the last handful of games, because it's only about 20 or so left, probably less than 20 at this point. The range is not great in terms of how much is going on. I said before, and they played 66 games, so it's not a lot of time left. They need to get better at late game execution because in this Eastern Conference, despite the fact that there are not too many teams from a talent perspective that make you worry outside of the top three, these teams across the Eastern Conference play with physicality, they play with heart, and each of them have at least one guy that can go out and give them a bucket in a big game. 
the Cavs have Darius Garland and um they have Darius Garland and they're in a position where they can lean on a guy like Donovan Mitchell. I would actually put that in reverse. I would say Donovan Mitchell actually will come first. And then the fact that they have Darius Garland is also a plus. For the New York Knicks, Julius Randle is back to what the Julius Randle we saw two seasons ago was. Now, we'll have to see what that looks like in the postseason, but Jalen Brunson has been big for them. I believe that Jalen Brunson has also been so good for the New York Knicks that he deserves to be in all-NBA conversation. But I'll get to the Knicks later, so I'm not going to get into them too much right now. The Brooklyn Nets are probably a team that you can maybe get away with. The Brooklyn Nets are not extremely talented, but they have talented wings across the board. Wings win NBA games. I know that for sure because of the versatility that they provide. And between Cam Johnson, um, Mikael Bridges, Dorian Finney-Smith, they have a serviceable point guard in Spencer Dinwiddie. They have Cam Thomas. They have a handful of guys who in any given game can go out and go give you a bucket and really go out and guard at the same time. The Miami Heat, come on now. We know Jimmy Butler. We know Jimmy Butler in a postseason setting. And as of right now, it would be a Miami Heat-Boston Celtics series if the standings were to stay as they currently are. We know that although the Miami Heat don't look like the team that we've seen over the last two seasons, especially with the fact that Kyle Lowry has been significantly um, un, he's been, he's had an uninspiring time with the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat are still a team that in a postseason setting with the physicality they play with, with a guy like Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo on the floor, they are a team that's going to be scary for any team that has to see them in the first round. And I would even say that teams like the Atlanta Hawks and the Raptors, if they make it, they have a lead guy. We talk about the Hawks. They have a lead guy in Trey Young along with DeJounte Murray who's looking to make a real splash in a postseason setting because he's a guy that's going to be playing for a contract a season from now. So it's time to do your dirty work early because whether it's the Hawks or somebody else, DeJounte is going to be going to go get paid. And I think in postseason settings like these, this is where guys that are due for contract extensions, this is where you make your money. This is where you play. This is where you plead your key, plead, plead your case. So even the Hawks, interesting matchup in the first round. The Raptors, look, they don't generate three-point offense the way that the Celtics do, but they crash the glass. They rebound heavy. They create equal opportunities. They create extra opportunities for themselves. And with Yaka Pirtle, they've been forcing a lot more turnovers, something that also is really important when you talk about the Boston Celtics, because something else that also stood out to me when you look at them right now is in terms of turnovers, they take care of the ball relatively well, just under 14 turnovers a game. They're a team that handles the rock and plays very solid basketball. But against a team like the Toronto Raptors, for example, that, that thrives off of transition, offensive rebounding, and now with Jakob Pertl in the inside helping to create more of, of a deterrent at the rim, the guys on the perimeter are able to be a lot more physical out there. So they're forcing more turnovers. That's something that could also come to bite the Boston Celtics as well, because they're not they're not a team that hot dogs around the way we saw the Golden State Warriors of old, for example, where sometimes they would shoot themselves in the foot just by not taking care of the ball. The Celtics do. But what do they do when they face a team that thrives off of that? What do what do they do when they face off against a team that their whole M.O. is forcing turnovers at a high clip? That's a big thing. So the Boston Celtics. 
they they got to get it right. They got to get it right soon, and they got to get it. To, they they got to get things back on a certain track. Where I'm not saying they need to go back to looking like the most dominant team in the Eastern Conference or the most dominant team in the NBA in general, but they need to be a team that you feel confident about in terms of being able to close games out. Because in a seven game series in the Eastern Conference, I think that a lot of these series in the East are going to go to at least six. They're going to go to at least at least six. And so late game execution is going to be huge. Joe Mazzula has been signed on as the official head coach of the Boston Celtics for the foreseeable future. This is going to be a space similar to Ime Adoka last year where Joe Mazzula can create a real lane for himself as one of the better head coaches in the NBA. If he can come out with the type of season that he's been able to conduct on the floor through the regular season and then go into the postseason and coach up against some of these better coaches in the league because the Eric Spolstras and them that are in these areas, they have the talent to be able to compete against a Boston Celtics team. The X's and O's aspect is going to be the thing that I think really comes out and shines in an Eastern Conference setting because I don't think the talent across the conference is there, but I think that the physicality of the conference and the overall coaching prowess across the board, especially with the fact that, for example, even the Atlanta Hawks adding Quinn Snyder, there is a lot of coaching chops in the Eastern Conference. And it's going to be a lot of X's and O's games that really come down to who can execute in big moments. Boston has to be able to do that. Boston has to be able to do that. And that's something that plagued them in the series against the Warriors because that was a series where they were up initially in that series and they were unable to close games, specifically toward the back end in terms of four and five. That really put them in a weird position where, genuinely speaking, a lot of that series looked very rocky for them. And it was something that put them in a very awkward position and it ended up costing them a championship. I'm not going to go as far as saying they're the Phoenix Suns of two seasons ago where they were this super dominant team, or I guess it was uh, last season where, well, actually, you know what? That's a good, that's a good comp that I will kind of dive into for a second here. Similar to the Phoenix Suns of two seasons ago, the Boston Celtics are coming off of making the NBA finals and returning with a roster that primarily has a handful, if not basically all the same guys from the roster that made the original run. They come out and they dominate in the regular season the same way the Phoenix Suns did for last year. Cruise through the regular season and their inability to finish games was what cost them in the series against the Dallas Mavericks and also nearly cost them in the series against the New Orleans Pelicans in the first round. I think that the Phoenix Suns and the Boston Celtics are comparable in that way. I actually do think they are comparable in that way because I think that they are positioned in a way where they are coming in with a certain level of cockiness to an extent because they know what they've been able to do in the regular season. They know what they've been able to do with the roster they have currently and they know the capabilities of their superstars. In this case, we're referring to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But if they are unable to get this main thing under wraps, it is going to cost them. It is going to cost them heavy. And I don't know how this team moves forward 
coming off of last year being so night and day between the beginning of the season and the end of the season, and this year being basically, I don't want to say a complete flip-flop because it's just a three-game losing streak. Every NBA team is going to go through a stretch where they're not winning ball games, but the manner in which they're losing ball games at the time in which it's happening is not be is not beneficial to them. They are a team that has been one of the hottest teams in the NBA from start to finish so far. Up until this three-game stretch, they are going to have to get it right. I'm worried about the Boston Celtics. I do not fear for them too much, but I did also say on the Hit Your Free Throws podcast, shout out to my other podcast with the homie TV, I one of my bold predictions for the NBA playoffs was that I do not believe that the Boston Celtics are going to come out of the Eastern Conference. Now, who knocked them off? That's That's something that I didn't have the answer for. But I, but this three game stretch, and that this was something that I said in terms of our bold predictions. This was two, three weeks ago. This three game stretch right here, and the manner in which it happens, only further validates my worries that the Boston Celtics are positioned in a way where they're going to look like one of the better regular season teams, and then when they get in a postseason setting, somebody's going to catch them sleep. I think that somebody's going to catch the Boston Celtics sleep. I don't know who it is. But if they continue to play like this, if they continue to struggle with closing games with two top tier all-stars in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who I think arguably both are top top five at their respective positions, top 25, top 20 in the entire NBA, they are going to have to be able to close games in the postseason because a lot of these series are going to go the distance. And the ability to close games will be the difference between coming out of a series and going home. So I'm worried about the Boston Celtics, but it'll be interesting to see how they close out the season, considering they have less than 20 games to get this whole thing figured out. I want to go to the opposite end, and I'm going to head over to the Western Conference now, and I want to talk about a team that's going up, moving up to the second seed. See, in the reverse, Boston dominating at the top spot. They relinquished it to the Milwaukee Bucks recently. On the flip side, the Sacramento Kings, after this recent loss for the Memphis Grizzlies, the Sacramento Kings are now the second seed in the Western Conference. It still feels crazy to say. I continuously go back to the TikTok I recorded in the offseason when I was doing, I did the, the Knockdown J podcast. I've referred to, referred to the Knockdown J podcast on a few episodes already. It's something where I actually plan on grabbing a couple of those episodes and throwing it on this feed and reducing the Knockdown J brand into more so being this routine jumper brand. But that's a that's a podcast for another day. That's something that I'll do as more of an update on, on socials. But nonetheless, I remember clipping a segment from that podcast where I broke down the competency of the... Sacramento Kings with the offseason that they had bringing in guys like Kevin Herter, Malik Monk, and so on and so forth to really round out their roster. And although they do not have a ton of playoff experience, they have showed that they are going to be an extremely feisty team to catch in the first and potentially and potentially in the second round as well. The Sacramento Kings are a team that are doing this through clutch basketball play the ability to close games with one of the best closers in terms of clutch stats in De'Aaron Fox. And they are doing this in an unconventional style where they are leaning all offense and it is winning them games. To read out the statistics for the Sacramento Kings this season, 
As I mentioned beforehand, they are 38 and 26, which is good for second in the Western Conference. They are first in points per game on the opposite end of the spectrum. They are second to last in opponents' points per game. They are first in offensive rating, and they are fourth worst in defensive rating. Again, polar opposites in terms of what they're doing, and they're leaning all offense to win them games. To further the point in terms of the all offense, let's talk about some of the production numbers. They're shooting 50% as a team from the floor. That's second in the league. They're attempting the seventh most threes in the NBA at 36.3. They're hitting 37% of them, which is 10th in the entire NBA. They are first in two-point percentage at 59.2%. They are top 10 in free throw attempts and free throw percentage. They are number three in assists per game. Big, big philosophy thing for them in terms of their assists per game. 27.2 assists per game as a squad. And as I mentioned beforehand, points per game, they lead the entire NBA. This team can fill up the scoreboard like nobody else in the NBA so far this year. If we go through the statistics for some of the players on their team, they have six guys averaging double figures with De'Aaron Fox leading the way with 25.5 points per game, 4.3 rebounds, 6.3 assists, a steal a game. The dude is shooting very solid as well with 51.5% from the field, a light 32.6% from a three, and he's also getting 6.3 free throw attempts per game, which I think is huge. But peep the three-point numbers. 37.5% for Harrison Barnes. 40.1% for Kevin Herter. 40.9% for Keegan Murray. 33.7% for Malik Monk. But 37.4% for Trey Lyles and 37.1% for, for Terrence Davis. Those are all guys that are shooting between 3.6 three-point attempts per game and as high as in this case, I think the highest three-point attempts per game on the team is Kevin Herter at 6.7. So similar to the Boston Celtics, they are shooting the three ball at an absurd clip. They are shooting the three ball at an absurd, absurd clip and it's really helping them out. But ch check this out. Check this out. I'm not. I'm usually not the type to go crazy into the statistics in terms of making my point. But something that I thought was so crazy when you look at the statistics for this team in particular is the De'Aaron Fox clutch shooting numbers. De'Aaron Fox, in terms of the clutch shooting numbers right now, is number one in terms of clutch shooting across the board. I think the most important thing that I know about this team is the most notable thing about the Sacramento Kings that everybody's going to point to in a postseason setting is they don't really have a ton of postseason experience. If you look at the team's makeup, the only guys who, who are going to be getting regular rotational minutes that have seen the postseason are DeMontis Sabonis, Harrison Barnes, and Kevin Herter. Those are the only guys that are going to see significant minutes and have played in a postseason setting. Now, 
De'Aaron Fox has not seen the postseason yet, and this could be a coming out party for him because De'Aaron Fox is under that umbrella of being one of the more underrated guards in the NBA because we've never seen him on the brightest, on the biggest and brightest stage. It's similar to Shea Gilders Alexander. Before he had this insane pop of a season, Shea Gilders Alexander was not considered as a top 10 point guard in the NBA because it always felt like he was doing it within a smaller microcosm of what the NBA looks at when it comes to the idea of NBA superstars, because he's on a team like the Oklahoma City Thunder that isn't very good or has not been very good for the last couple of seasons. A similar tag has been put on De'Aaron Fox, and now that he's going to be in a postseason setting, can he have a Jamal Murray moment? Can he have a Tyler Hero moment? Can he have a Donovan Mitchell moment? If he has that kind of breakout party with the kind of clutch stats that he's had so far during the regular season and factoring in that the, the that the competency around him with DeMontis Sabonis helping to make this team function offensively for having three-point shooting like Kevin Herter and Keegan Murray who are each putting up about six threes a game, hitting them at a high clip, having dudes like Harrison Barnes who can go out and guard, Malik Monk who can fill up the, start, uh, fill up, uh, the scoreboard at any given time. This team, I'm going to say it again. I said it in the TikTok clip, and I'm going to keep pushing this agenda. The Sacramento Kings with Mike Brown are more disciplined than they ever were with Luke Walton, and discipline and competency across the roster in terms of their makeup with a facilitating big man that focuses on scoring on the inside and rebounding. Two wings in Harrison Barnes and Keegan Murray, who both can go out and guard in the perimeter, shoot the three at a high clip, and be on ball threats when they have the ball in their hand. Kevin Herter and Malik Monk, who can both shoot the three ball at a high clip, and both can get hot in terms of shooting in any given game. And then a lead guy at the guard position at De'Aaron Fox. That is the makeup. That is the formula for a playoff team that can be dangerous against anybody they see. So I'm not saying that the Sacramento Kings are winning the championship, but I'm telling you, whoever sees the Sacramento Kings in the first round is going to dread it because everybody that keeps picking the Sacramento Kings as a team that everybody should be looking to pick on. If you're looking for a way to finesse around the Western Conference uh, standings, be that team to go ahead and try to aim to face the Sacramento Kings. And I promise you that team is going to get burned. Because the Sacramento Kings are not looking to just break a streak. I think they are looking to truly set a standard for themselves moving forward. And I think it took place in the offseason with the moves they started to make. The competency they showed in the, the at the trade deadline by not making any real adjustments, not getting too big in their own head and thinking they need to make some major move to really settle the score. They understand who they are. They have solid personnel. They have a coach that has been coaching his tail off and is deserving of the coach of the year in my book. The Sacramento Kings are a team that nobody wants to see in the first round. And I think that everybody preaching that that's the team to gun for if you're trying to make a postseason, if you're trying to make a postseason run starting with the first round, everybody who thinks they're going to go pick on the Sacramento Kings in the first round is going to be sadly mistaken. And whoever the team ends up being in the first round to face off of the Kings, hey, bro, all I'm going to say is prepare to see that beam, bro. Prepare to see that beam because Sacramento is going to be lighting the beam 
throughout the entirety of the first round of the postseason because I think that the Sacramento Kings are good enough to get out of the first round against any team they potentially see. I think the Sacramento Kings might genuinely be good enough to get out of the first round against any team at the second spot right now. If we look at the Western Conference standings, the potential teams that they could see in a first round matchup, if the playoffs started today, would be the Minnesota Timberwolves. I think the Sacramento Kings can take out the Minnesota Timberwolves. The L.A. Clippers, I think that they can beat the L.A. Clippers. They showed in a significant overtime game with Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Russell Westbrook on the floor that they were able to compete head-to-head with that team and win in a big-time overtime game that was all scoring all the time. Both teams got in the 140s. The other teams that could potentially face them in the first round could be the Los Angeles Lakers, who, although I have my... Hopes for them is a weird way to put it, but although I have this genuine belief that with Anthony Davis and LeBron James, if healthy, they could be scary, the if healthy part is a big thing with the LA Lakers. And that's one of those things where I don't think without and I don't think without LeBron James, Anthony Davis by himself can take out the Sacramento Kings with the way they've been playing basketball this season. The New Orleans Pelicans without Zion Williamson cannot beat the Sacramento Kings with the way they've been playing but playing but basketball this season. Those are the teams that the Sacramento Kings, with the position they are currently in, those are the teams they can see in the first round. Those are the teams they can see in the first round. And maybe you guys can let me know in the comment section. But between if we're talking, if the Kings make the playoffs as the second seed in the Western Conference, between the Timberwolves, Clippers, Lakers, and Pelicans, me personally, the only team that I would potentially take to beat the beat the The only team that I would take to beat the Sacramento Kings in a seven-game series would be the Los Angeles Lakers with LeBron James healthy. You guys can let me know whether or not you agree or disagree with that take, but to me personally, when you look up at the makeup of this team versus the teams they will potentially see, a fully healthy Lakers squad is the only team that I see actually giving the Sacramento Kings trouble. I'm not saying the Kings are going to go 4-0 sweep whoever they see in the first round, but I think that in terms of Winning a series, the Kings are positioned where no matter what team they face in that first round, they, they're they not going to be favored by Vegas, but they should be. No matter who they face in the first round, they're not going to be favored by Vegas. I genuinely believe that. Maybe the Timberwolves series they will, but I don't think they're going to be favored by Vegas, but I think they should because I think the Sacramento Kings are that damn good this season. So like the beam, man, like the beam. I've been on the Sacramento Kings bandwagon since the since the offseason when the moves initially started. The Mike Brown signing, what I think was huge at the coaching spot. He has brought a lot of maturity and structure to that team. And it's just really helped them out to a, to a big extent because, man, I've been on the fire Luke Walton thing for years. And it, this goes to show you what a star point guard can do when given competent head coaching what a more abundant franchise can do with a competent head coach we can say that players win games and players win championships i definitely agree with that but it's things like these culture changes like these for the sacramento kings where you end up understanding where you get to get a visual of what having competency at your head coaching position can do for a franchise that's why the head coach is so important guys like mike brown who brings structure focus 
and an identity to your team. Those are all components that can formulate a team from being this middle of the pack to moribund franchise to being a team that we have to genuinely pay attention to game in, game out, season to season. Shout out to the Kings, man. Shout out to the Kings. Last team is the team that I think really nobody wants to see in the Eastern Conference. Shout out to the New York Knickerbockers. Cue the music. Go New York. Go New York. Go. Go New York. Go New York. Go. Go New York. Go New York. Go. No, but in all seriousness, bro. Although the New York Knicks just dropped a game to the Charlotte Hornets, they were without Jalen Brunson, who was out due to a foot injury. The New York Knicks are 9-1 in their last 10 games. They were riding a nine-game winning streak up until that loss the other day against Charlotte. And, bro, the Knicks are scary, bro. The Knicks are scary. I know it's so hard to want to believe in the Knicks, but they're doing this in a sustainable fashion. Let's go about reading the stats. You know we got to get them off. 39 and 28 is good for fifth in the Eastern Conference. Something that I think is super important is that it seems like it's inevitable that there's going to be a first round matchup between the New York Knicks and the Cleveland Cavaliers in the first round. The question will be, which one of those teams is the one that secures home court advantage? If I'm the New York Knicks, you want to be able to have home court advantage in a series against Donovan Mitchell and the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think that they're going to need all the help they want because from a media standpoint, boy, talk about the storylines of the guy that they could have had being the guy in the opposite jersey facing off against them in MSG. Everybody's going to look at the Knicks as a target. And the Cleveland Cavaliers, with that kind of storyline backing them, many are going to pick the Cleveland Cavaliers to come out of that series. And probably for good reason. I think you can make a legitimate argument that Donovan Mitchell is, is easily the best player in that series, even with the way that Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle have been playing. I also think that they have the better they have overall better personnel when you talk about the fact that they have Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, and I think that the Darius Garland component is going to be so huge in a series like that where you have to find out who is going to be that secondary offensive weapon next to Donovan Mitchell. We know for the Knicks, it's Julius Randle and it's Jalen Brunson. For the Cleveland Cavaliers, it has to be Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. It has to be. Both of those guys are going to have to be able to click because here's the thing. The New York Knicks are 12th in points per game and 8th in opponents points per game. 5th in offensive rating and fifth and 15th, excuse me, in defensive rating. One of the bigger things that I noted when I was looking at the makeup of this team is they're not a team that lits off a lot of three-point shots in terms of being able to hit them at a high clip. They're 8th in terms of attempts, but they're 22nd in terms of percentage. This is very different from the other two, two teams we talked about. Sacramento and the Boston Celtics are two teams that get them up at a high clip and hit them at a high rate. This is a Knicks team that gets them up at a pretty decent clip, but they're a team that hits them at about an average rate. One of the things that I think is very notable, though, is they make up for that with their physical play, and it comes in the form of being able to cre create free throw attempts. They are fourth in the NBA as a team with 25.5 free throw attempts per game. If you want to look at the main culprits of that, go no further 
Then the two guys at the top, as I mentioned before, Julius Randle, who's averaging almost seven free throw attempts per game. Jalen Brunson, who's averaging almost six free throw attempts per game. And then we even have to give some credit to R.J. Barrett, who also is just over five free throw attempts per game. Something else that I think was super big, though, something else that I think is huge. They are top three in total rebounding. And they are number three in offensive rebounding. This is a team that crashes the glass create secondary offense for themselves, has guys who can shot generate in Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson. They have dudes who play hard-nosed defense on the perimeter. I'm talking about Josh Hart, and I'm talking about Quentin Grimes. I like Emmanuel quickly and what he's been, been able to do as a tertiary offensive generator. Mitchell Robinson has been a very solid deterrent at the rim so far this season, and the 1.7 block, uh, blocks per game is very, it does speak to that, but I think that if you overall look at the contest numbers, he is one of the better shot contesters in the NBA this this league um this season as well. The New York Knicks, the New York freaking Knicks, man. They have been the team that has quietly been in this top five range that not many people have been talking about until this recent nine game stretch that they had. Before that nine-game winning streak, the New York Knicks were not a team that many people were worried about. And maybe people are still not worried about the New York Knicks because similar to how many people say that the that with the Dallas Cowboys, what can go wrong will go round, wrong, the New York Knicks tend to have a similar effect on, on their, their fan base. Two seasons ago, they're a top four seed. They face off against the Atlanta Hawks in the first round. Julius Randle stinks up the joint and they get handled easily by the Atlanta Hawks. Could we see something similar happen where the villain being Trey Young got the win and now the villain in this case is Donovan Mitchell and now he comes out and gets the dub? There is a potential likelihood of that. But anybody who's just outright picking the Cleveland Cavaliers to just completely manhandle the New York Knicks, I think is going to be going into that bet very uninformed because this nine game winning streak is not just the only thing that shows that the New York Knicks are good enough to win in a seven game series against the Cleveland Cavaliers. The overall makeup of their team is something that is really different from what we saw a couple of seasons ago, because a couple of seasons ago, it was heavy minutes for Julius Randle, heavy minutes for RJ Barrett, insane three-point shooting from both of them, and offensively, it was pretty much those two guys are a bust. And they did, although they had a top caliber defense, they didn't have a ton of perimeter defenders that could really make things difficult for guys like Trey Young, for example, on the perimeter in that given series. And everybody was able to just load up on Julius Randle in the postseason, in, in that postseason series. This team has Jalen Brunson. RJ Barrett now is playing a tertiary role. They have perimeter defenders. The New York Knicks, man, I'm telling you, one of the things that I'm going to preach on this podcast, and I feel as though I already have, is that team structure is so important in cer certain situations, but more specifically in the postseason. You have, you have teams that are built for regular season success, right? You have teams that are just built to coast through the regular season, win a lot of games, take out a lot of bad teams, 
get a couple of the games that's supposed to win and maybe win some of the games that they're maybe not supposed to. But they coast through the regular season off of a play style that's just conducive to winning games when there's 82 of them. But then there's that eight to nine man rotation you have to be able to have to rely on on a night in the night out basis as another team is game planning for you for an entire week to two weeks. And you have to be able to have guys that can com compete at a high level on a night to night basis and produce in a way that brings some level of consistency right now. The nine game, the, the nine man rotation for the New York Knicks. The nine, the nine man rotation for the New York Knicks is very solid. It would have to be for me, Julius Randle, Jalen Brunson, R.J. Barrett, Quentin Grimes, Josh Hart, Emmanuel Quickly, Mitchell Robinson, and then the question really comes down to. I really think it comes down to is it Isaiah Hartenstein or Obi Toppin, and I think that Obi Toppin should be the guy that gets those minutes. The Knicks are solid, bro. It's so easy to kick the Knicks when they're not playing well, but it's also that much harder to praise them when they do well because you're kind of just waiting for them to jump off that cliff. And I'm sure many are looking at the Charlotte loss as like, all right, well, that was good while it lasted. But I think that the Knicks really have something cooking right now. Now, the crazy part about this podcast is I don't want to set things up where it makes it seem like I have this out this outlandish belief that like all of a sudden the Knicks are going to make the Eastern Conference Finals and the Sacramento Kings are going to make a push for the Western Conference Finals and and maybe even the NBA Finals. I don't think I'm going into that lay that lane. I don't think I'm willing to be that hyperbolic. But I think as of today, many would look at the Knicks and say they would not win again win win a, a first round series. Um, against the Cleveland Cavaliers. I don't believe that's true. I think many would say that Sacramento is the team that everybody thinks is going to be the first to drop off or the easiest of the top four teams in the in the Western Conference in terms of having home court advantage. They're the team that everybody should want to see in a first round matchup. I also don't believe that that's the case either. I think that the Sacramento Kings and the New York Knicks both are operating as sleeping giants in their own way. And I think that with that being the case, whoever has to see the New York Knicks and the Sacramento Kings in the first round, good luck. Because I think that despite how easy they might seem like they be, they might be on paper. If you watch the games and you've seen these teams produce, the New York Knicks defend. They have shot generators. And on top of that, they're a team that's playing very feisty. The Sacramento Kings are looking to put Sacramento back on the map. They're breaking a streak that is almost as old as I am. And they're looking to put themselves back in a position to be considered as a real team in the Western Conference. Considering they've been a toss-up team in terms of where they're going to be landing in the lottery for like the last five plus five to 10 plus years. I think the main thing that I want to come away with this podcast, I want people to come away with it with from this comp from, from this podcast in particular. Let me, let me restart that a little bit just so I make sure that it comes out the way I want it to. I think the main thing that I want people to 
come away with from this podcast is that competency and structure just creates so much more competitiveness and real belief in a basketball team. The Sacramento Kings get a competent head coach, an all-star forward slash center in DeMont Sabonis, who has playoff experience and legitimate talent with a skill set that focuses on getting others involved and then also grabbing assets around the edges that fit as perfect puzzle pieces next to that big man and next to their lead point guard. The New York Knicks need another offensive generator next to Julius Randle in order to create offense. They thought that was going to be Kimball Walker last season. It ended up not being that. Jalen Brunson has stepped in and been exactly that shot generator at the point guard position that they've needed, especially when you tack on the development of Emmanuel quickly on top of that. They are now getting that shot generation from the point guard position that they did not have two seasons ago or even last year. This team also guards at a high level on the perimeter, something that they did not have, despite the fact that they were such a solid defensive team two seasons ago. Competency can help a team so much in terms of not only just turning around their season, but turning around the perception of their franchise. And I look at this season as a really good litmus test for some of those teams that feel as though they need some crazy outlandish super trade or they need a big three or they need to do something that's completely out of pocket in order to make their team competent. Sometimes there are things internal from a discipline aspect that you can do to just create a better environment for your team and for your best players. And it changes everything. I think that De'Aaron Fox has been this good for a couple of seasons now. Maybe the clutch stats now, no, they, that's, there's no nothing indicating that. But in terms of being an elite level scorer, a guy who plays at a high level and plays at his pace, that's been that way for seasons now. But now he has a competent roster around him that fits to his skill set and a coach that not only believes in him in closing situations, but is putting him in positions to close games with high, with a high, at a high level and with a high amount of trust. The New York Knicks identified that Julius Randle, although he did have an outlier season two years ago, needed help around him from a shot generation standpoint in order for them to be able to have sustainable offensive outputs, not just during the regular season, but in a postseason setting where you have to have multiple options to be able to score because your best player is a target for six to seven games, or of course, as long as the series lasts, if it goes shorter than that. But your star player and stopping that star player is the primary focus in the postseason. And Julius Randle was their only true threat to score on a night to night basis outside of R.J. Barrett here and there. And they addressed that. They could not guard guys like Trey Young on the perimeter two seasons ago. So they grabbed guys like Josh Hart, elevate the minutes of a guy like Quentin Grimes, who can go out and guard at that level on the perimeter. In the NBA, competency and structure can do so much for your franchise that just simply winning games cannot do.
They say winning cures all, but yes, that only does that when there's internal turmoil or any kind of disconnect within the organization in terms of where they're headed moving forward and what kind of guys they want to keep around and things of that nature. But competency and structure is the thing that is sustainable in a way that in spite of all of those things, you understand the consistent identity of that team, regardless of any drama or structural issues from it, from an organizational standpoint. In terms of how the roster is made up, I mean. So that's the main thing I think I want people to take away from this podcast in particular, specifically with the teams that I talked about being the Kings and um, the New York Knicks. I also think in a way that it also could be addressed with the Boston Celtics as well. I think that when you focus on competency and structure, which I think has been huge for even the Celtics as well, because with all the offseason drama they had, losing Danilo Gallinari, not having Robert Williams for the start of the season due to injury, they just stayed the course. They rode with their guys and they led with a with a skill set and a play style that fits what they do best. And they they up until recently were the best team in the Eastern Conference because of it. And all they did was make moves on the margins. And they brought in a guy who 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 still maintains these aspects of structure and competency. So that that's my main thing, guys. Structure and competency in the NBA means a lot. And I think that with that being the case, this might be a hot take to end the podcast, but I think with that being the case and seeing so many different case studies of what that has looked like in the NBA just this season, if you look at the teams that have been able to produce above their weight, Will Hardy with the Utah Jazz. Everybody thought that Utah was just going to kind of fall off a cliff after trading Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. But they got a competent amount of pieces back, and they have a very solid head coach in Will Hardy. And they outperformed what many people's expectations were to start out the season. Now, they've been they've dealt with injuries, and obviously there is a certain level of tanking that you would want from a Utah Jazz team that has as much draft capital as they have. But they were one of the hottest teams in the NBA for the beginning portion of the season. A similar thing can be said for the Indiana Pacers. The Indiana Pacers with Rick Carlisle, they were a team that prior to acquiring Tyrese Halliburton didn't really have any kind of real direction they were heading into. They acquired Tyrese Halliburton and now they have a full season of him. And you see that although they're 12th in the Eastern Conference, that was more due to injuries specifically to Tyrese Halliburton earlier in the season than it was their ability to produce on the floor. Buddy Heald is having a career season. Miles Turner is having a career season. Ben Matherin came out the gates firing like nobody else, like nobody else in terms of rookie outside of Paulo Bancaro. The New York Knicks, as I mentioned, Jacques Vaughn for the Brooklyn Nets. He was the steadying force that after the Steve Nash era ended. He was the steadying force that made that team make sense. And the only reason why it blew up was because of business related operations and Kyrie, Kyrie Irving related stuff that also was business oriented. When you look at the fact that the main reason he did everything he did was poor, was mainly because of contract extension negotiations. I mean, when you look across the NBA and you look at the structure of some of these teams, even the Atlanta Hawks, for example, the Atlanta Hawks move off from Nate McMillan 
and they get Quinn Snyder. And although it has not necessarily led to wins since acquiring Quinn Snyder, if you watch the tape, they are already starting to play a little bit differently and mold more into a little bit more of the team that you want you wanted them to look like for majority of the season in terms of the play style that they've been rocking with. And so what I what the hot take is is something that also correlates with something that I heard on the Dunked On podcast with Nate Duncan and um and Hollinger and um yeah 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 and John Hollinger is John Hollinger mentioned that he believes that we are going to have seven more head coaching changes this offseason. And I thought to myself that that was pretty insane when I first heard it. But I think the more that I look across the NBA and I focus on this idea of competency and this aspect of establishing a structure and reinvigorating a culture into some of these teams, there are a lot of teams that need a culture shock. So I'm going to go with John Hollinger on this one. I believe that if you look at the way the NBA is heading with a lot of the head coaching changes, the fact that there are so many contract extensions, the fact that there are there are so many insane packages required in order to be able to get an all-star caliber player these days, and the fact that many guys are not going to unrestricted free agency, at least the super talented guys are not going to unrestricted free agency as frequently organizational changes are going to be the main things required in order to be able to change the fortunes of these teams. And I think that the first and most direct place that that can be handled is a head coach. So I do believe I'm going to be in agreement with John Hollinger. I believe that we could probably see anywhere between five to seven more head coach cha coaching changes before the start of the 2023-2024 NBA season. Because like I said, man, competency and structure. <laughs> now I pounded that, I pounded that across you guys' head a couple of times. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop doing that, but I just want to keep pushing that agenda because I feel like it's just something that the more and more I look into these teams, it really stands out as one of the bigger changes for a lot of these squads this season. But with that being the case, guys. This is the end of this edition of the Routine Jumper podcast. Remember to check out my social medias, the Knockdown J and Routine Jumper on Instagram and TikTok. I am going to be launching the blog in a, um in the coming days. I know I feel like I say that all the time and it's just been one of those things that I've been really struggling with between school and work and everything else. I'm not going to make excuses because at the end of the day, I want to make this content. I want to write for you guys. I am going to be launching the YouTube this week as well. I'm going to be doing shorter videos that kind of take the segments that I do in these podcasts and doing them in a more like reactionary way. There's also going to be a bunch of different content that also comes out as well as reactions and different things like that. I've got a ton of ideas for what I want to do with the YouTube channel. So stay on the lookout for that as well. Guys, this NBA season has been super enjoyable. The more and more I continue to dive into the nuances of the NBA over the last couple of days, and as we move closer and closer to the postseason, the more and more excited I am for playoff basketball. Remember to tune into the podcast, man. Remember to share, like, comment, and subscribe because I'm trying to really grow this podcast, and I'm trying to grow as an NBA analyst. So help your boy out. Share the content. Let me know how you guys feel about the content so I can learn how to continue to work hard and get better at what it is I'm trying to do. Thank you so much, you guys, for being listeners and subscribers. And until next time, 
Stay easy and peace out.